What do you think about this Supreme Court making decisions about income tax? Your money, shouldn't it be Congress? Wasn't that how it was set up to be? Interesting case, maybe coming before the Supreme Court. I'm Bert Cohen. With your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Is there anything unconstitutional about a wealth tax? Well, lucky us, the 2023 version of the Supreme Court will soon consider that very question. Now, for many years, the furthest right of the right wing has long claimed income taxes in general are unconstitutional. (laughs) But they're incorrect. It's been tested many, many times. The far right of years ago is the Republican Party of today. They are one and the same. The questions of who government serves and how one defines fair taxation have suddenly come to the fore. One of the cases before the new Supreme Court could make it nearly impossible for Congress to pass a federal wealth tax, even though it has a lot of support, especially now Politically, many of us in the traditional wing of the Democratic Party have long recognized that such a traditional initiative would be extremely popular, taxing the richest among us, and that pushing for a wealth tax would not only boost Democratic fortunes for the upcoming election, but would also be the right thing to do. It would help answer the hanging question of who the government works for, the ultra-rich and the corporate interests, or the common good. So what the nine rather questionable members of the ter- today's Supreme Court have before them is a new case, Moore versus United States. Ah, what is all this about? Our guest to explain this interesting development is Matt Ford, staff writer at the New Republic. His work focuses on the law, the courts, and democracy. Matt previously wrote with The Atlantic his new piece is titled, The Supreme Court May Preemptively Ban a Federal Wealth Tax. As he notes, given the recent ethics questions about justice's interactions with billionaires, it's an interesting case to take on. Boy, you can say that again. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Matt Ford. uh, We hope that you'll guide us through the thicket that is tax law. Please tell us about this case. Who is the plaintiff and what is their legal standing? Well, first of all, thanks for, for having me. Uh, and this, the case is uh, more of the United States. Um, it's a case that the court agreed to hear uh, last month in one of their wrap-up orders for the term. Uh, it basically, surprisingly enough, is not about a wealth tax directly. It's about a uh, tax that was imposed as part of uh, former President Donald Trump's tax reform law, uh, which he passed in 2017. Uh, as part of that, you know, part of it was a complex sort of reconfiguring of how uh, federal corporate tax laws work and how they tax uh, overseas uh, corporations that are owned at least in part by Americans. And as part of that, they, they imposed a sort of one-time uh, what was called a mandatory repatriation tax on American taxpayers who own more than 10% of a foreign corporation. And, the, you know, it's, it's, it's a complex tax question, but what it basically boils down to is that the Moors, the um, named plaintiffs in this case, uh, they owned 11% of an Indian farm equipment company. They got involved with it through a friend. Um, they're very happy with it. They, they seem to enjoy it. Um, but they were caught up in this provision that was part of a broader restructuring. And as a result, uh, they had to pay an additional $15,000 in taxes. 
they have sued the federal government after paying that, arguing that they shouldn't have had to pay it in the first place um, because they argue that it was a direct tax uh, imposed um, in violation of the Constitution's procedures for taxation and not an income tax under the 16th Amendment. And yet it was... Oh, that's so fascinating that here it comes under the the Trump uh, era of tax reform, and they were taxed on the income, if I'm correct, from their 11% ownership of this Indian uh, farm-related investment there. Sounded sort of like, yeah, this could be counted as income. Was was that the question, really, that they were so sure that, that, that this was just simply not income? Well, you know, the, the way it was adjudicated, was, or the, the way it was assessed by, by the new law, is the assumption that, you know, this possession of this um, ownership stake uh, would have allowed for dividends to be paid. Now, the mm-hmm. more say they paid that back into the company, um, but the, the federal government viewed that as income either way. Um, they view it as simply they're being taxed for their ownership stake, which is different in their view, uh, than necessarily a source of income. It's, it's an extremely granular question on the taxation front. Um, but it's one that could have a much wider ramification, uh, down the road, which is what their lawyers, uh, pitched to the court. Uh, uh-huh. so the rest of us who are not, uh, hyper wealthy, or have a bunch of uh, 200-foot yachts, uh, it might have some impact on us as well, even though this is currently a granular situation that uh, only applies to people in their exceptionally rare stratospheric situation. And (laughs) (laughs) there's been a long argument about uh, the, the tax, the income tax per se, is unconstitutional. It, it happened in the early part of the 20th century. The income tax was passed by Congress in 1909, finally ratified in 1913. It was the 16th Amendment that established Congress's right to impose a federal income tax. Many people today on the far right, a, a, aka the Republican Party, still consider it uh, unconstitutional. And the push for a graduated income tax bubbled up from the farmers of the South, yet another division. We've seen a few divisions through the centuries. Uh, the farmers of the South and the Midwest, to the Populist Party and the Greenback Party, uh, they they wanted, they argued very effectively for a, a higher rate of taxation on a certain amount to be taxed more heavily. So a certain amount above X number of dollars, which I believe under Eisenhower was something like uh, $500,000 a year, which was a lot of money back then, but I'm, I'm not sure of the numbers then. But uh, the, the 16th Amendment took effect and has been law, and people have uh, paying, been paying it for years and using whatever lawyers they can to do generous exemptions and deductions. And somehow it seemed that way back then, uh, when it was supposed to have be a source of money, considering it was just after the incredibly expensive First World War, that that less than 1% of the population paid income taxes at the rate of only 1% of net income. But, and so it's, there's a lot of murky waters in here as to what's, what's realistic and what's not. And 
having been a former legislator myself in the New Hampshire State Senate for a long time, the wording is ex of extreme importance. And this is the language that people need to understand. And I think this is, once again, pretty clear language. And this is it in the 60th Amendment. The Congress shall, ha shall have the power, shall have the power to lay and collect taxes on incomes from whatever source derived without apportionment among the several states and without regard to any census or enumeration. And so there were various different tax rates through the years when I was growing up. It was, municipal bonds uh, used the high 50% tax rate to attract uh, investments into their municipal uh, capital projects. And there was a 50% uh, tax rate, and so that it made it more attractive by not, by not taxable. Again, as I said in the beginning, it is, it is a thicket, but it's been going on for a long time, and it's flipped back and forth. I mean, Eisenhower was president, a Republican, big military guy, American hero. When he, during his presidency, the corporate tax rate ranged from 30% to 52%, according to the Tax Foundation's historical data. But it did see some tax rates above 90%, or at least proposed. And that figure was to be applied only to individual income taxes on of top earners for married people jointly filing jointly in 1953, for example. 1953, any income above 200000 Above two hundred thousand, not going up to two hundred thousand, but above two hundred thousand was taxed at ninety percent. Above three hundred thousand at ninety-one percent, and above four hundred thousand, which would be unthinkable, at ninety-two percent. So what's to, people? You know, you hear talk these days of taxing the hyper rich, make, making them, making them pay no more, no less than their fair share of taxes. And people still label Bernie Sanders as far left, even though his tax proposals, just the tax proposals, are actually to the to the right of Republican Eisenhower's tax rate for the portion of income over and above certain rather large amount. Elizabeth Warren also favors a federal wealth tax. <clears throat> Tell us, if you would, please, about the other proposals by Oregon Senator Ron Wyden, another good man, and proposals within the Biden administration to tax billionaires based on their assets and what some of the political and other legal arguments might be with regard to taxing billionaires based on their assets, not just their income. Well, that, that's that's where sort of the, the source of this legal dispute will come from. I'm glad you started by reading off the, the 16th Amendment because I think the text there is, is really instructive as to what's going on here. You, uh, the 16th Amendment says that income taxes should be collected without apportionment among the states. And so that supersedes a requirement for other direct taxes that, the, that Congress can impose that requires them to be apportioned equally between the states. And that's sort of a, a regressive uh, approach to taxation. It means that taxes uh, in states you know, with more high-income people will be applied less severely um, than in states with lower-income people. Um, so the, the, the application of that is, you know, it's an old feature of the Constitution. It was um, imposed when, when our, our obviously the federal tax collection system was a lot less sophisticated. Um, but it was, like you mentioned in Pollock, the main hurdle to uh, impose a federal income tax prior to the 16th Amendment. Now, the other, the other uh, catch there is the what counts as income. 
Um, you know, the wealth tax and its proponents widened the Biden administration and, and Senator Warren, as you mentioned. Um, but wh- what they pitched as is that people can use these assets as collateral to obtain loans. And those loans can serve as a source of income. And so, ergo, um, these assets, you know, things like property, like stocks, um, they count as income in an indirect way. Mm-hmm. That, that would qualify them for, in their view, taxation under the 16th Amendment through a wealth tax. The Moors have taken a slightly uh, narrower interpretation. By slightly, I mean that almost jokingly. They would view that as a they they would say that that property ownership, those ownership stakes, those property holdings, they don't qualify as income, and so therefore they can't be um, taxed under the Sixteenth Amendment um, without apportionment. And that would be obviously a lot more complicated to do. Um, It's a lot more hurdles for Congress to jump through if they have to apportion it among the states. Uh, and so there's little interest in Congress in ever doing that, which is why the 16th Amendment was so pivotal. Now, the Moors have argued this in two ways. They've argued it narrowly as applied to the provision in the 2017 law that Trump passed. And then they've also made a sort of broader argument that Congress, that this could apply to future wealth taxes. They've explicitly mentioned um, proposals by Wyden, by Warren, by the Biden administration. And they've sort of told the court that, look, this is going to be a legal issue when it comes if and when this happens. And you could sort of get out in front of this by by ruling now whether such wealth uh-huh. taxes would be would be unconstitutional. Um, that's not usually the way the Supreme Court works, but that's the argument that the lawyers made both in their briefs and even more aggressively in Wall Street Journal op eds. Um, and so that's that's why this case is is much more interesting than simply. Um, a case about Indian tax equipment uh, or Indian farming equipment taxation. Uh, taxes are big. I mean, you know, everybody, it affects everybody. And when I, you know, when you think about it, people who have been redlined for generation after generation, uh, you know, if you want to look at their assets, uh, do they pay income on their assets? Well, chances are, having been redlined, i.e. stuck in neighborhoods that are only allowed for those people, i.e. people of color, they don't have the same kind of assets that can be taxed. Whereas, uh, is it true that if, if somebody has, you know, yachts and multiple properties that, uh, you know, they can rent out and make income from, are those... <sighs> If they're strictly an income, you know, generating property like, uh, you know, certain uh, apartments and houses, I would think those can be taxed as income, but maybe not. I think that would depend on on how the the tax is constructed. That that's a little bit more of a granular question in terms of things like yachts. Um, but we know from from reporting by ProPublica and other publications. Uh-huh. Um, that many of the Ameri- wealthiest Americans pay very little in income tax, right. uh, simply because of the way they've t- taken advantage of loopholes and sort of structured their business affairs so that they don't draw what is typically considered to be a direct income. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was one of the pushes in, uh, behind a federal wealth tax from Warren and the others, uh, because they saw this as a way to get around all that. They saw this as a way to um, more directly tax billionaires for their their sort of dragon-like hordes, um, and ensure that Americans see um, that the tax system fairly, you know, reflects all of us, no matter our wealth. Um, that, that was the argument made by them, and that's the argument that's been resisted by 
many, many conservative legal scholars. Hmm. Well, I, I guess in, in simpler, perhaps non-granular terms, uh, as you know, a somewhat average income person, how the heck do some people with tremendous wealth get away with paying little or no taxes? And isn't, I mean, we got to pay for all this stuff. I mean, the military sucks up unbelievable amounts of money, you know, and a huge percentage of the revenue that comes in, just huge percentage, and nobody even talks about that. But how is it that the, the, the ultra-wealthy, the hyper-rich, the people who are, you know, in a frenzy for more and more money, which strikes me, I'm hoping someday psychology, psychiatrists will find some way of treating that rather bizarre behavior, but some of them pay virtually no taxes at all and can, you know, write off various different things for the future. Uh, I, I, it is kind of, you know, it's confusing. And too, I, I would think average income people, they'd be like, hey, what's going on? I'm paying my fair share. I'm paying 20, 25%. What about those guys? Well, I mean, you know, most of us, I, I think this is an instance where uh, wealth makes it easier to stay wealthy. You know, most of us, we go on every April and we, yeah. um, or earlier if we're more on the, on the ball on these things. But for me, uh, every April, um, and we plug our information into TurboTax and we pay a small, uh, you know, a fee for that. Uh, and then we send it off to the IRS. These people have, uh, lawyers and accountants who are able to sort of look for loopholes, look for creative ways around things, uh, and argue and, and eventually succeed at getting a much lower tax rate. Uh, you know, we've seen also that this is one of the reasons that, that some on the right have vociferously opposed uh, any efforts to bolster the IRS, because we know that the um, audit division of the IRS does far less audits than it should. Mm -hmm. um, it's been starved of resources for much of the last decade, especially. Um, and it's thus, therefore has taken the, the tragic approach of auditing lower income people more heavily than it audits uh, higher income people. Um, simply because it's easier, simply because, uh, you know, lower income people don't put up as much of a fight. They don't have uh, the lawyers and accountants that, that are able to sort of push back on this. Um, that's one reason we've seen Republicans fight so hard against uh, the Inflation Reduction Act's expansion of the IRS with 87,000 new agents. Um, they've likened them to stormtroopers, which is uh -huh. <laughs> which is sort of laughable and almost sort of offensive. Uh, you know, they, the, the resistance to that uh, on the enforcement side, I think is key. I, I, I've written about that a little bit in the past. Um, but I think it's key to why, um, the gaps in, in inequalities in our society have grown. It's not the sole reason. It's not even the primary reason, but it's a contributing factor because the people who, who play fast and loose with these rules aren't ever held account to it. Mm. Boy, I remember, I must be a little bit older than you, perhaps, uh, in 1988, when Mike Dukakis was my candidate for president, he thought it was a brilliant idea. He put forth the idea of hiring more IRS agents. And I'll tell you, I think that's among many things. <laughs> that kind of sank him. People didn't like that idea at all. I don't know, he, he thought it would be popular, but boy, it wasn't. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And to have democracy, you got to have fair taxes. My goodness. Our guest today is Matt Ford, staff writer at the New Republic. His work focuses on law, the courts, and democracy. And he previously wrote for The Atlantic, a couple of good magazines. And you have suggested that such a tax, 
you know, a tax on, on assets, on wealth, a wealth tax, you know, stuff that is not income, but if you put on your ledger, there's a lot of uh, commas and zeros that <laughs> come up sometimes. You, you suggest that, a, that such a tax could set off a major constitutional class. How so? I don't really understand that. Well, so part, you know, it, it's it's sort of a strange role for the court to be doing this. And I should caveat that we don't know exactly what the court will do with this case. Um, the justices may rule against this party. They may rule in favor of it. Taking up a case doesn't necessarily mean right. uh, which way they'll go. Right. Um, but it was very striking when you read through the briefs and read through the, th- the other things that the lawyers wrote. Um, that they were pitching this as a way for the justices to sort of resolve any constitutional questions about a federal wealth tax before it could be levied. Um, the co- court under the Article Three of the Constitution only hears cases and controversies. And what that means is they only hear actual disputes in which there's an injury and a remedy and, and sort of basic things for them to resolve. Um, when they go beyond that and when they render advisory opinions, that's, that's sort of unconstitutional. Um, and that's a charge that's been levied against them in, in some recent cases where uh, there have been, you know, very awkward questions about standing and some of the parties in cases they've resolved, whether or not there was a legitimate dispute to resolve. And so while there is a legitimate dispute in this case, while there is one about the 2017 tax law and there is something for the court to, uh, to decide, the concern among some is that with this um, case that's been explicitly pitched as a way to sort of head off a future federal wealth tax, um, that the court may be dipping its role into the policymaking arena, not letting Congress go through the process of deciding whether or not it wants to pass a law and simply saying in advance, you can't do that. Wow. Yikes, that would be big. But doing active, uh, you know, it's interesting that the so-called conservatives, really a right wing, have have railed against activist judges. And yet here they are. I mean, if this ain't activist, I don't know what is. I mean, for example, there was that recent case, if I have it right, which I may not. I put that out there. I may not. There was something about a a, uh, a retailer who had a website which made celebratory cakes. And even though she never had a case that she had to, or that she felt like she had to uh, reject a case for a uh, LGBT wedding, uh, the court, the court itself actively created a case where none actually existed. And so that with the point being that they could enable discrimination against LGBT, LGBT plus people. Uh, could this, am I, is my memory right on that? And could this kind of be like in that, uh, direction? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think it's sort of symptoms of the same problem. That case that you mentioned, my, my coworker, Melissa was one of the first to, was the first to sort of break the story about, um, the fact that one of the, the people who supposedly called asking for a, a same sex cake is, says they never called that they're actually a straight person married in a heterosexual marriage and, Mm. With a child, you know, that 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 didn't seem to line up. Um, you know, I, I think that that the this is an, this case is slightly different in that there is a legitimate dispute, but it does come from sort of the same symptom, which is the court wants to resolve certain issues. Um, and in the 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 case that you mentioned, three hundred three Creative v. Lennis, uh, you know, the the person who brought that case, even if you set aside the the sort of possible hoax 
um, <laughs> form that was submitted. Uh, and I say possible because, right. you know, there are, there are some questions surrounding it and there's, there's some ambiguity. My, my colleague did not go so far as to say anybody had fabricated anything. Um, but we'll just say that, you know, that besides that mystery, um, you know, you have a person who, who has never created a wedding website, um, may create one in the future, she says, um, may. and sort of wants, wants to get this question resolved um, before she does so. And, and, you know, while we do have pre-enforcement challenges to laws sometimes, um, this, this case was, and I've, I've written about this previously, was sort of hypotheticals on hypotheticals. Mm-hmm. Um, there wasn't really any eminent danger um, to this person unless they actually uh, created a website service and, and uh, solicited business for it. Um, and since they didn't do that, you, you know, they're, they're, it's a few steps removed from what the court usually does. Um, and it's also striking because we see a, a sharp contrast in standing in these cases mm. where the court is favorably inclined towards the plaintiffs. Uh, and those where they aren't cases like uh, habeas cases, uh, those involving criminal defendants, um, those involving, you know, other uh, you know, lawsuits against uh, corporations. Um, the court has narrowed standing in some circumstances and widened it significantly in some others. And I think this is sort of a, a, a broader issue of the court looking for issues to, to decide rather than hearing cases and controversies. Boy, picking and choosing the direction you want the laws to go. You know, and people, average people is what, 330 million Americans, and we're, we're supposed to believe that, yeah, there's the legislative, the executive, and the judiciary. The judiciary is supposed to stand alone and be unaffected by that stuff. And it makes it a little bit difficult to have that faith when there's uh, courts leaning so heavily one way and making laws that uh, you know, just preemptively uh, create a situation. And it, it comes under more focus in that what's happened recently in the headlines with the court. They say they don't care about public opinion. I don't believe it. Uh, one would have to really be hiding under a rock in recent months not to know about the questionable ethics involving uh, Justices Alito and uh, Thomas and their coziness with ultra-right funders, you know, taking trips from them, getting tremendous gifts from them. You're like, that's not going to influence how they vote. Uh-huh. How does that or should that affect the superior courts, the Supreme Court's decision on whether or not to hear the case. They don't, no cases have to be heard. What do you think? How do you think that will play? There's a lot of political well, dynamics there. I, I think that, you know, you've, you've hit us upon something very important. I think it's something that, the, that maybe the average American doesn't necessarily know if they're not familiar with how federal courts are structured. But you're right. The court, with an exceedingly rare list of exceptions that aren't really applicable here, does not have to hear any case. It mm. has almost unfettered control over its docket. And so it is when, when we say that the court is, is, you know, tilting further to right, it's because it's taking up cases that it wants to tilt further to the right. Um, you know, these, these are choices that they put in front of themselves. It's not as simple as, Oh, you know, somebody came before us challenging this wealth tax. I guess we have to hear it. This is a case that, that where there was no circuit split. This is a case where there is no, um, likely future instance of reoccurring because, you know, it was a one-time tax imposed in 2017. Um, it does not usually fit the mold of, of the kind of cases that the court hears. And so I think that, you know, that really highlights how 
the justices are going out of their way to hear these things. Now, I, I think that this one is particularly interesting. I mentioned this briefly in my piece um, because, as we say, the, the justices, there's been a lot of reporting about some of them going on very fancy trips with very fancy people, um, going on fishing trips to Alaska, going on. There was a reporting in The New York Times over the weekend um, that the Justice Thomas gets, you know, box seats at every uh, Cowboys uh, commander's game here in Washington, D.C., which doesn't sound like a gift to me, but that's just me. Um, they, they, you know, they, they, they enjoy this largesse um, from, from various billionaires under the guise of, of friendship. And, you know, it's, it's just very interesting that, you know, while they're facing all these questions about their ties to extremely wealthy people, they take up a case that could, um, if they rule on it in a way that the, the parties in the case want, um, could make things a lot sweeter in the future for for these billionaire friends of theirs. Uh, it, it seems it seems pretty clear. I mean, how could they not? I mean, uh, I, I have to wonder. And you know, I, I wonder. There's the idea of <clears throat> what a reasonable tax is. It says so in the law, but is is there an objective method or is that by definition impossible? I mean, for example, can assets be taxed or is it only strictly on income? And if, you know, today's income is tomorrow's asset, you know, uh, is there an objective method to, to define clearly, legally, what a reasonable tax is? Or is it really subjective? My sense is, you know, what would a reasonable person say? I don't know. There's lots of reasonable people out there. Well, I, I mean, so in this case, there there is some precedent on on you know what counts as income. And remember, you you quoted it earlier. Another key provision of the Sixteenth Amendment is that from whatever sources derived, the writer, the drafters of that amendment intended it for it to catch things very broadly because they anticipated that you know wealthy people would try to find ways around this. Mm -hmm. And so it does apply to things like stock dividends, like uh, capital gains. Um, those are things that the courts have upheld in the past. Now, there is sort of a, a, a narrow question as to whether this one-time repatriation tax um, does count because it wasn't a dividend in a traditional sense, but it, it, you know, it does represent sort of a uh, material gain of wealth that was brought about by the, the changes in the tax code. Um, you know, I think that, that that narrow question is a very interesting one. What's, what's troubling, well, very interesting to me at least, to somebody who covers the court, um, but as you know, the broader question that they're also trying to resolve, and this is, this is the part of the case that, that really caught my attention, um, is that they also want the court to go further and say things more broadly and narrow the 16th amendment mm. in ways that could stop, um, Congress from imposing a wealth tax in the future. Um, so this doesn't just become an interesting case about, uh, what the 2017 tax law did. It becomes a much broader case about what the 16th Amendment means. And I think for that, that is a particularly strange ground for the court to walk on oh. um, while it is under fire for its relationship with all these billionaires. My goodness, I guess so. I mean, you talk about activist court and whom, whom, the question of who makes the laws. Isn't it Congress that makes the laws and the, the uh, courts that decide and analyze whether or not something uh, is constitutional. They don't make the law. They don't, I mean, to narrow the 16th Amendment, to specifically set out to narrow uh, the 16th Amendment, that's 
that's a big deal, is it not? I mean, that would set off a constitutional clash, wouldn't it? I mean, wouldn't Congress say, hey, wait a minute, you're stepping on our toes? I think so. And I think that, you know, uh, the big concern here is that, you know, this is an issue that the court has. This is uh, sort of a recurring theme for the court. We've mm-hmm. seen in some recent cases they've used something called the major questions doctrine, where they effectively second guess the uh, Congress on laws that it has actually passed. Um, you know, that's they, 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 they don't take, you know, interpretations of statutes that Congress passed at face value. They say, well, Congress must not have intended uh, for you to do this, and therefore it's invalid. That's how they struck down um, some of the Biden administration's uh, COVID mandates. That's how they struck down um, EPA regulations uh, last term in, in West Virginia v. EPA um, under the Clean Air Act. Um, it's a tool that they've increasingly used where they supposedly say, you know, this is Congress has, you know, we're not saying whether or not Congress has the power to do this. We're just sort of second guessing them and telling them to write it more clearly. Um, they know that, you know, there's very little likelihood that the Congress under its current political divides mm-hmm. will go back and, and expand the Clean Air Act. And so there is sort of a thumb on the scale there in terms of, of you know, making it harder for the federal government to um, pass regulations and enforce federal laws um, in ways that, you know, the court doesn't like. I think that's going to become an even more urgent issue next term when some of these these cases on administrative law and on federal agencies' powers become uh, come up before it and become much more salient. And it's interesting to me how among the bizarre phrases that the Trump administration came up with was the administrative state. And, you know, and, and the picture that they sought to present was of nameless, faceless people changing the laws without any consultation with the representatives of the people. And yet, that's exactly what they're trying to do, (laughs) it seems to me. That's incredible. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, uh, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about the courts. They have a big effect on if there's democracy. Our guest is Matt Ford, who is staff writer at The New Republic. His work focuses on law, the courts, and democracy, and he previously wrote for The Atlantic. And one of the things you mentioned that I, I need to follow up on was the term a repatriation tax. What is that? I've, I've never come across that. What is a repatriation tax? And what does that mean to super wealthy people or the rest of us? Well, so this is, this is specifically part of the broader restructuring of, of corporate law, that the, of corporate tax law, um, that the 2017 law did. Um, and one of those things it did was treat um, foreign corporations as uh, well. I'll, I'll, I'm trying to think of a way, a way to sort of shorthand explain this. Um, I think it, it, it what the main thing it did, and I think the most key thing with relevance to, to the uh, lawsuit here is that corporations, you know, it taxes Americans. Uh, under, I'm sorry. Let me start that sentence over. Uh, corporate taxation is no longer taxed um, from where you know Americans earn their taxation wherever they get it from. It's taxed on a more local level, territorial level, under state laws. And so the net windfall effect of it here, the repatriation tax, was that by changing that, the Moors, the, the named plaintiffs mm-hmm. in this lawsuit, received sort of a windfall for their um, their ta- holding these these uh, shares in this company for the last, I think. 
15 years, I think was how long they've had it. Um, by having it taxed differently going forward, they would have a sort of retrospective windfall um, from that change in taxation. Um, so uh, to, to sort of forestall that, Congress imposed a one-time tax um, to ensure that people weren't sort of having a bonanza um, just because they were, they were changing around how the taxation laws worked. Um, and since that specific tax was, was a repatriation tax, it was sort of uh, focused on bringing back foreign incomes into the United States that American citizens had derived from other countries. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it sort of makes sense. Um, and the Wall Street Journal has, has not been quiet on this. They've never been known as a particularly liberal or moderate paper. But then again, they've not been associated with the really wacky right. They just haven't been. But as your essay cites, in 2021, they editorialized in favor of the Moors taking their case to the Supreme Court. They wrote that Congress's taxing power is not without limits. Okay, how are those limits set? What about the observation of the Wall Street Journal's editorial on that? Well, I think that, you know, this this, this sort of speaks to a broader focus in uh, the conservative legal movement against this sort of expansion of taxation power or their, what they perceive as an expansion of taxation power um, that it could allow wealth tax in the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's one reason why the Wall Street Journal, which is traditionally very friendly to these sorts of people, um, to the wealthiest Americans, yes. uh, has spoken up in favor of it. Um, and they also ran uh, uh, an op-ed by one of the lawyers um, representing the Moors, uh, where they also argued, and they sort of pitched this. Uh, I say pitch in the sense that, you know, you pitch a story to someone sure. who's a journalist. They sort of pitched the case to the courts, um, speaking broadly, but with obvious focus on the Supreme Court, um, that, that they could, you know, confront these 16th Amendment issues and sort of resolve uh, wealth tax questions before they arise. Um, and I, you know, the, it's, it's really striking at the time, but it's also even more striking now that we've seen Justice Samuel Alito respond to, um, these ProPublica investigations into his friendships with billionaires, mm-hmm. uh, in the pages of the wall street journal. Um, you know, this is, this is a editorial section that, um, conservative judges and conservative Supreme court justices clearly read and pay attention to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's sort of a communication going on there that I think is, is, um, you know, might might portend something different than the usual way they resolve cases uh, for this one. That that could be the outcome. Yeah, and they they are certainly not without political power. That's for sure. They, there's not a lot of people involved with the Wall Street Journal, but a lot of political power. And you note that a, that more than a few legal scholars have argued that such attacks would not fall within the Sixteenth Amendment's parameters. Tell us about that, please. Well, well, you know, the, the, the question has been, you know, this is, this is not a new question. And I think that's, that's important to point out here is that ever since Warren and others proposed this wealth tax, there has been genuine legal pushback against it. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some people on one side, some people on the other as to whether or not the 16th amendment would allow this sort of tax. Now that is a very valid and, and, you know, legal dispute that the court would have to take up if such a wealth tax were passed into law. I think that 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 would be almost inevitable, and I think the court would have would would feel obligated to sort of resolve it one way or the other. Um, the question now is that this the they're trying they may try to resolve that question before a wealth tax can even be passed. Mm. And I think we've seen in the past that when you deal with a sort of hypothetical controversy, 
it's a little easier for certain people to decide things a certain way than it is if there's a live one. Um, you know, we saw from the, the affordable care act that when they, when the court considered it, John Roberts, uh, famously switched votes to uphold the individual mandate, um, for health insurance. Uh, that was a case where, you know, if he'd ruled the other way, it would have completely upended, uh, the American, uh, health insurance industry. Now we see that here where, you know, for the justices, it may be more appealing to them to handle this in sort of a hypothetical way rather than get down the line and have to handle it in a situation where they would be unambiguously ruling in favor of billionaires. Um, you know, this, this is an issue where there is a legal question to be resolved, but it's certainly not necessarily right before the court now. And the parties involved are trying to get the justices to do it before it reaches its proper procedural length. Mm. And they, they don't have to take it up. The, the courts have, I mean, deciding whether or not to take a, a course, a, a cause, a case. Only four votes are needed for the justices to make the decision to take any particular case. And the Biden Justice Department, as you note, has urged the court to not take the case, to reject the case. What is what is the argument? What about the prospects for whether or not the court takes the case? I mean, there's so many odd things about it. Well, what they're going to do is, is make an argument based on precedent. They're going to say that, you know, from their perspective, this is a, a uh, tax on uh, deferred income, but income nonetheless derived from uh, foreign ownership of shares in which dividends were reinvested. Um, they're going to point to precedent and say, this is a valid exercise of, of Congress's taxation power. And indeed, that's the argument they made uh, to the court in their, their reply briefs when the court was considering the petition. Um, you know, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the, the four votes thing, because I think that's something that people might not necessarily know about the court. They think of everything being decided by five, four votes, six, three votes. Uh, when the court agrees to hear a case, only four justices are needed to vote in favor of that. Mm. And the reason for that is, is that, you know, it ensures that a court majority doesn't necessarily control the court's docket. It gives sort of uh, the justices who aren't necessarily in the majority the ability to still uh, influence the court's uh, handling of cases. So we don't know for sure that because uh, this, code is, this case has been heard, we don't know for sure that the court will resolve it in any specific way um, because we don't know that they have five votes for it. They may just have four votes for it to hear it in the first place. Um, but that does mean, you know, based on past practice, people don't typically, the justices typically vote on cases that they think the court will decide um based on you know their ideological perception and so there is little incentive for example if you are a, a liberal justice to vote to hear this case mm. because you know it could go in a different way um that they may prefer now the, the you know the court um doesn't always you know make sense when it comes to this yeah. justices change their minds they do uh as they hear cases they they may go one way they may go another we've seen that in recent terms where um, sometimes they've surprised us on how cases have been resolved because they've they've clearly gone back and forth with the behind the scenes. So I, I want to caution by saying that nothing here is guaranteed. Right. Uh, nothing here is preordained. Um, but there is certainly very notably a, a push by the to get the justice to resolve something uh, in advance. And, you know, the Supreme Court should take up cases. There are cases that it should resolve. There are cases where two federal courts disagree with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, there are cases where a major federal law is is being interpreted. Um, in a way that they could have broad ramifications and they, you know, there needs to be some sort of final say on things. Um, this is not one of those cases. This right. is a case about a very minor technical tax dispute. 
um, that nonetheless the parties want to decide on much broader grounds. And so I think it'll be very interesting next term uh, to see whether they take the bait, so to speak, or whether they keep it simple. And has there not, I mean, there has not been, correct me if I'm wrong, a dispute between various courts along the way up toward the Supreme Court that, that one court says one thing, another court says the other, and that that leans it more toward the court accepting it. Is has has Have there been unanimity among the various courts along the way, or what is the status of this alleged case? I, I'm... You know, I, I'm, I'm not aware of any legal challenges to this specific provision uh-huh. and any other courts right now. I, I didn't see any mentioned. You know, sometimes when these cases come before the court, there's sort of a grouping of them from, from uh-huh. different circuit courts. Um, that wasn't the case in this case. And I think the, the Justice Department pointed out that this isn't really um, something that the other courts have split upon. There hasn't been anybody ruling sort of in the Moore's favor or for a party similarly situated uh-huh. to the Moore's in another court. Uh, so this this is a case where, yeah, it just appears to be um, no real dispute among the lower courts, but uh-huh. the Supreme Court nonetheless decided to go with it. Interesting. Yeah, no no actual urgency, no incentive uh, that one can see, except for the Moors want to uh, have things done their way and set a, a standard such that, you know, you can't have a, a tax on deferred income, which... To tell you the truth, it makes sense to me. If you know, if you defer income, uh, I mean, we do have uh, a capital gains tax, which is different from an income tax, but there are ways of taxing things that one makes a profit on, and it seems to be entirely within the uh, context and rules of the Sixteenth Amendment. Uh, and uh, the, over the, you know, people generally, there's sort of this feeling among Americans all across the country for well over 100 years, taxes. Oh, I hate taxes. The only thing in the world that we know is going to happen is death and taxes. And they want to be able to put it on a postcard to make it simple. And I know in the past, in 1992, what's his name? The guy who ran for president who uh, gave us Bill Clinton. I uh, can't think of his name right now. Ross Perot? Yes, Ross Perot. He wanted a flat tax. What about that idea? Is that something that specifically benefits the wealthy people and and avoids paying their fair share of taxes? I suspect it is. Well, I, I'm I'm not specifically familiar on on what Ross Perot's tax proposal was. That was a little before my time. Uh-huh. But my understanding is is that um, you know it would be extremely regressive and and yeah. uh, while it not may not result in much taxation changes for you know lower income americans or middle income, middle class americans right. um the net effect would be a much lower tax rate for for wealthy americans um and i think you know the the takeaway from from that being a central issue of, of the pro campaign is that taxation is is a issue that is very important to americans i mean that goes without yes. saying yes. uh and it's one that is exclusively the province of the elected branches the idea of all the way back to the revolution, right. um, that people should have a say in how they are taxed. And so I think the courts have been traditionally sort of reluctant to get too involved in these things beyond sort of clarifying statutes when they're vague. Uh, and so I think if, if, if the Supreme Court sort of carves out a role for it in deciding how taxation policy should work, uh, that could bring a, a sort of backlash that, that many Americans might find unacceptable. Certainly erodes democracy. 
to have the courts, the unelected courts, making the decision about how taxes are paid. And I think people do really care about democracy. I don't know. And one thing, of course, for any family budget is you look at where your money is spent, and that shows your values. And the money that we're spending on the military, even though we're not in any war or anything right now, except helping uh, Ukraine be protected from Russia, but uh, we never look at how the money is being spent. When Congress, which is the rightful body to decide about taxes uh, and how they are spent and allocated, uh, decides every year what the budget will be, they won't even touch the military. And there's so much waste there, and so many hundreds of billions of dollars. And yet, if we don't touch that, uh, the tax situation, it, 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 it's missing at a component that is necessary to uh, be able to uh, do something about the, the unfairness of taxes, seems to me. Your thoughts? Well, I, I think that, you know, this, this that, that will be an issue that's very salient. Uh, you know, one of the, the things that's really been amazing about the Biden administration pushing for uh, more more funding for the IRS is that it came at a moment where the American people were inclined to do that. I think they've seen the sort of reporting about uh, the wealthiest Americans not paying their fair share. I think they've seen, uh, you know, the, the reports of, you know, people like Elon Musk and Warren Buffett paying none or barely any right. income taxes. Right. Uh, and I think that's that's made it a more emotionally charged issue for them. And so they're more receptive to something that would have been unthinkable 10 or 20 years ago, which is a president openly saying, hey, let's let's expand the IRS. Um, so I think this is this is an issue that, that's going to really be animating for American people, maybe in ways that they don't actively realize. You know, there are always issues that that seem to be more superseding. But I think it's a real kitchen table issue that, that will drive people um, if they perceive that, you know, somebody or something is, is not allowing them to um, get their fair share of taxes paid and not allowing people uh, to pay their fair share of taxes either. And one often hears about the spinelessness of the the Democrats, the DNC, and the corporate end of the de, you know side of the Democratic Party. It seems to me, and I'm often wrong, that if the Democrats really wanted to win, they should grab onto this issue and say, "Tax the rich, tax the rich, and have everybody pay their fair share of taxes." And the fact that the Democrats are so willy-nilly about even touching that issue just it bugs the heck out of me here is what i think is a sure way to win in 2024 i don't know what your thoughts are on this but uh, i just think the democrats are missing out on this well i mean I, you know whenever i talk to people um and maybe that's not a representative sample of americans people sure. certainly think that 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 the wealthiest Americans aren't paying their fair share. Um, I certainly don't think it's a loser to argue that the wealthiest Americans should pay more taxes. Yes. Um, we know that they've received uh, plenty of tax cuts over the years, especially recently. Uh, and I don't think anybody can seriously argue, unless they're a billionaire who wants to pay fewer taxes, um, that reversing those would hurt anybody. I, I think that, you know, in a country where uh, the wealthiest people enjoy all sorts of privileges and advantages, that they should, you know, compensate the country for for providing those absolutely and the golden age got nothing on us you end your <laughs> essay this way taking up a case that could protect billionaires from wealth taxes before congress can even pass them is an interesting choice please say more well i i think that you know the court chooses its docket the court decides what cases it will hear each term 
sometimes based on necessity, sometimes based, as we've discussed, on on sort of the urgencies of resolving genuine disputes between lower courts, um, but sometimes just because it wants to. And I think that, you know, this is a case that the court wanted to take. This is a case that does not fall within any of the usual reasons why the court hears um, cases. And so I think that it has to be viewed through that lens. Whether the justices are simply very passionate about how the, the 2017 uh, Trump tax cuts affected foreign corporation repatriation uh, and deferred incomes, uh, maybe that's just something the justices are really interested in. Uh, or maybe they're interested in the very aggressive case put forward by um, the plaintiffs in this case and their lawyers and the parties um, who signed friend of the court briefs with them. Uh, the court should take a chance to sort of kneecap uh, federal wealth tax before Democrats can pass it. I think it will be very interesting to see uh, which path the court chooses when they hear oral arguments on this sometime next fall. Wow, indeed. This is very interesting. It's not exactly in the top of the uh, attention, but then again, only uh, TV personalities seem to be grabbing the attention. I don't understand <laughs> it. But this is exceedingly important. Matt Ford, staff writer at the New Republic. How, what's the best way for people to follow your work on the internet? Well, you well, you can follow me on Twitter.com at Ford at, at Ford M, uh, or you can uh, simply read my, my articles on the New Republic's website at uh, NewRepublic.com. Terrific, great magazine. I've been a fan ever since uh, uh, ever since it started back in the First World War. Of course, I wasn't around then, great. but I know about its history. <laughs> Thank you so much. Very interesting. Let's hope we get justice. Well, thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Money, money. Money makes the world go round, the world go round, the world go round. Money makes the world go round, it makes the world go round. A mark a yen, a buck or a pound, a buck or a pound, a buck or a pound is all that makes the world go round. The clinking, clanking sound can make the world go round. Money, money, money. Money, 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 If you happen to be rich and you feel like a night's entertainment, you can pay for a gay escapade. If you happen to be rich and alone and you need a companion, you can ring for the maid. If you happen to be rich and you find you are left by your lover and you moan and you groan right along, you can take it on the train, call a cab, and begin to recover on your 14 carat yacht. What? Money makes the world go round, the world go round, the world go round. Money makes the go round of that we both are sure. I'm being poor. Money, 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 Who's there? Hunger. Oh, hunger. See how love flies out the door. 
money makes the world go round and round, go round and round. Money makes the world go round, the clinking, clanking sound of money, 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 money. Give a little, get a little money, 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 money. Mark I end up up or about that clinking, clanking, clanking sound is all that makes the world go round. It makes the world go round. If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe; it's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course the website keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.